welcome to Can You See It? This is the first ever podcast series initiated by the Arthit, the official research publication of the Department of Economics at St. Xavier's College, Mumbai. I am Kushi Desai. I am Smriti Natarajan. We are the editors-in-chief of the Arth Niti this year. Our theme for this academic year is disruptions. Inspired by Shumpito's creative disruptions, we talk about the world's past, its present and its future and the many social, technological and political revolutions that have occurred and their impact on economic life. This podcast series was conceived as an attempt to explore academic topics using a novel platform, one that would allow experts to offer their views on relevant issues and students to engage and deliberate with them. Today we have with us Professor Dr. Agnello Menezes, more commonly known as Professor Aggie to his students. He is the former principal at St. Xavier's College, Mumbai, and has over three decades of experience teaching economics to students of various streams, including management studies, BA, mass media, and public policy. To begin with, Professor Aggie, we would love to hear more about your views on the recent Nobel Prize in Economics that was awarded to Dr. Abhijit Banerjee, Dr. Esther Duflo, and Dr. Michael Kremer, and the attitudes of the Indian political class to developmental researchers like Dr. Banerjee. Uh, what these Nobel laureates have done is they have looked at development from the point of view of empirical evidence. So until and unless you have an intervention taking place, and if that intervention is not tested out empirically, then you do not know whether the intervention works or does not work. Okay, And from that point of view, I think they are being extremely realistic in their views on development. So I would be in favor of what they are doing. Although I have my uh, my reservations about the way in which uh, randomized control trials take place, but the bottom line of having empirical evidence to state whether an intervention is workable or not workable, should take place or not take place, should be funded or not funded by the public authorities, requires that kind of empirical evidence. Okay? So from that point of view, I think the Nobel Prize... Uh, committee has done the world of development a favor by bringing into the viewpoint the importance of empirical evidence before launching any kind of funding programs. So that is what RCT is all about. My reservation about the uh, whole program is, one, you have a control group where the intervention actually takes place. And let's say it's an intervention where you're looking at primary education. So you give primary education to one set of people and you do not give it to another set of people. And these are organic human beings who are growing without the education, without the intervention. And so five years later, that child who has not been given the education because you want to test whether it works or does not work is the loser. Okay, so there's an ethical issue. There's a moral hazard created in the course of this kind of an RCT. Another big issue that I have with uh, the... The propounders of RCT through JPAL and all these things is that they do not challenge the current system. They just enter the system and like first aid workers will work with the system without getting structures changed, without demolishing the structure, without asking questions of the government. All they say is if there is an intervention, we'll try out its results and the lack of a political economy a critique of the current system is something that does not gel well with me. So if this model of getting empirical evidence can also be married to the aspect of critiquing the current system, then I think RCTs 
would really deliver for making impactful analysis and impactful uh, inferences. Okay. Now, if you ask me why is the current dispensation not very pleased with these uh, Nobel Prize winners, especially the, the Indian uh, component of the Nobel Prize winners, and I think that is because they tend to ask questions that are rather ticklish and rather you know, uh, tricky for the government of India to be answering. So it is from that point of view, I think the government is not very pleased with them because they may not be exactly towing the line. And because they are JNU, he's from JNU, because he has a left orientation, because he is along the lines of Omartya Sen, okay, and not somebody who is a center-right, I think this is what the government is not very pleased with, that this kind of a person is not somebody who is fitting the bill of what they think should be an economist, simply saying yes to whatever programs or to whatever success rates that they are putting up over there. So it is very strange that in the real world, in his real personal life, you have Banerjee being extremely critical of the government. But when it comes to practicing the RCTs, those questions are not being asked. Okay, so within the confines of what the policy outcomes are, the RCTs are being tested. But beyond that, he, along with Rajan, Raghuram Rajan, and along with Arvind Subramaniam, I think that this is the think tank that India should be tapping into in order to make our programs much more meaningful to the alleviation of poverty. That is my one take on this, that they are not, they are not exactly towing the line of what the government wants them to say of the programs. And the other one is, Banerjee has been an important part of the discussion or the structuring of the Congress's program of Nyai. And so that must be also a, a point of non-happiness, uh, unhappiness that the government has with this Nobel laureate. So, sir, staying on that topic of poverty alleviation policy, uh, Professor Banerjee was asked in a televised interview by India Today about Prime Minister Modi calling uh, Manrega a monumental failure of the Manmohan Singh government. He doesn't believe in the handout approach to overcoming poverty. What are your thoughts on this contrast between the Congress's handout approach, which is essentially bottom-up approach, compared to the NDA's top-down approach, so to speak? What agrees better with the average Indian citizen? I think uh, Prime Minister Modi may have said this when he was Chief Minister Modi. Because when he took on the government of India, when he started being the head of the government of India, he increased the amount of funding to M. Narega. Okay, so he must have said this only as a political rhetoric. He has actually given more money to M. Narega because this is the way in which you will reach out to the poor. You will make sure that the poor are contributing productively and at the same time you are also making sure that they are uh, sustaining in their livelihood, they are sustaining in their life so when you talk in terms of the top down and the top and the bottom up approach, I prefer the bottom approach because the bottom up approach because that's more democratic. In the top down approach, you assume that you are being almighty. You know what the poor require and therefore you simply tell them 
this is what I think you require and I'm giving it to you. So whether it gels well with them, whether it suits the, the, the poor, whether this policy of one size suits all works across a heterogeneous section of the poor. I have a problem with the top-down approach. The idea of poverty, I mean, the, the phenomenon of poverty is definitely something that is requiring scholars to look at the heterogeneity of poverty. And poverty has to be understood as deprivation. Okay, and not just deprivation of income, deprivation across all kinds of survival strategies, all kinds of requirements. And when you start telling me from top that you should be consuming this or that, then you are not at all encouraging me to live my own personal life within my cultural environment and so on and so forth. But when you're looking in terms of the down-up approach, okay, bottom-up approach, my gut feeling is that you are engaging with the grassroots and by engaging with the grassroots, you're actually finding out what is it that they require, what is that will work best. And this is where Abhijit Banji's ideas come handy, that they actually work with the people and see what they require, what will work best and what will not work best. So my hands go up for the bottom-up approach because it's more democratic, whereas a top-down approach is very autocratic in character. So while we're on this theme, what is your take on the universal basic income program, specifically in the Indian context? For instance, the as you mentioned, Congress Party's 2000 election manifesto pro promised a minimum income guarantee scheme, formerly known as Nyuntam I Yojana Nyai. Uh, do you think that this program targeting the bottom of the pyramid would have been a game changer if implemented in the form that it was proposed? You know, when you talk in terms of this uh, universal income, I hope it is in the form of income and not in the form of a handout. So when I'm saying income, I'm assuming that there is some productive contribution made by the recipient. Because if you just hand out, then you are going to create a problem of inflation. So when you talk in terms of this universal basic income scheme, I'm hoping that the word income is attached to the idea of supply. So the recipient supplies and then receives so that this balance between aggregate demand and aggregate supply will always take place and inflation does not become a monstrosity. We need inflation. Okay, you've got to understand that there is healthy inflation, there's tonic inflation and there's toxic inflation. If you put money into the hands of the poor without them contributing, to the national production process, then I think inflation becomes toxic. And that's the danger that can happen when you go in for simple handouts. So you get people involved and get them involved in productive, lasting work and not simply make a kacha road which gets washed up in the next monsoons. And again, you get them working on the same thing. Okay, that's getting an economy caught in a rut. I think that's why villages and the village and the rural economy is not growing. They're rather stuck. Because we are ex we are expecting them to deliver non-efficiently and things that are not exactly sustainable and productive in the long run. So the, the concept, I hope they are very conscious of the fact that they are calling it income. So if they are calling it income, 
then they are being respectful of the poor because they are saying, poor people, you can contribute, you have the skills, and because you are contributing, you are earning. Okay? And that would bring a toxic element of inflation, uh, the tonic inf uh, aspect of inflation to play. Like so. So speaking more about the theoretical foundations of anti-poverty policies in India, in a guest lecture you took for our sociology class, you mentioned a, a poverty as deprivation, understanding it as deprivation. And you spoke about how the poverty line is not an adequate measure of poverty in India. What are some of the alternatives in that case or the improvements to the poverty line that can be made? Considering this is a measure of poverty that has been in practice for years now. See, I'm not against the poverty line per se, because you've got to have a demarcation. You've got to know who are the haves, who are the have-nots, and the poverty line serves the purpose. My issue is with the construction of the poverty line. So the poverty line treats us just as if we are animals, not making sure that we get our food. But we are beyond animals, we are human beings. The poverty line does not take into account uh, my basic entertainment, my basic leisure, okay, all that it expects me to do is eat, work, eat, work, okay, it converts a poor person into a machine and my grouse is against that. So I think you're missing, you miss, I mean, I didn't convey the message well maybe to you when I said I'm not, I'm against a poverty line. I need a poverty line. There must be a benchmark, a demarcation. But can the poverty line be something which is more human. And if the rich person factors into his consumption basket, entertainment and leisure, and therefore is a better human being, is a more uh, uh, refreshed human being, then I think the poor also deserve that kind of a uh, poverty line construction. Where the other aspects, apart from income, is also factored into the poverty line. Right, sir. So moving to the field of academia and research, you have great accolades to your name. One of them is your thesis, which was titled Social and Economic Geography of Urban Poor, Rack Pickers in Mumbai. How do you think learnings from that study can be applied to the situation today? And do you think that the creation of a waste picker welfare law is the need of the hour? I don't know whether I can limit the learnings to only today. I think the, limit, the learnings are for then and also forever where we are talking in terms of respecting those who help us to keep our cities clean and to help us to overcome ecological disastrous outcomes. So the learning is not very, it's not a momentary learning. I think it's a momentous learning, it's a perpetual learning. And the learnings can come from the dignity of work that these poor people have when they are right out there in the gutters they work in a dignified manner, although they would be looking extremely dirty and all those things. You've got to remember that they're doing a job which is essential for human survival. Remove them and you'll have all the systems getting clogged. Okay, so they are doing an essential work which just because works with dirt, we are disrespectful of these people. So that's one learning that we've got to be taking into account that there are people at the bottom of the work pyramid who are making life better for you and me simply because they keep various important hygienic sanitation and other kinds of facilities unclogged. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson that I picked up or I think we should be picking up from 
these kind of people who slog to make a living is their tenacity. With little, they live full lives. And when I'm talking in terms of full lives, please don't bring in the the uh, the kind of negatives that you can say. Oh, they'll take the money and they'll booze it, or they'll take the money and they'll drink, get into drugs. That's what even the rich will do. Okay, but then you got to remember that they may be doing it in order to forget their woes. No, where they worked with to earn that money. Okay, so you got to remember that certain addictions take place, also as a way in which you can obliterate the kind of negative environment within within which you worked. So here is a tenacity that we can pick up from these people, and then I'm looking at their versatility. Okay, with the kind of skills that they bring, the kind of recyclings that they go into, okay, things that we have discarded. Remember, they revive, they resurrect back into the market, okay, and at the lower end of the market, but they resurrect that, okay. So that's another aspect that we got to learn from these very very poor people, and the last aspect that we got to be looking at is the poor are also human beings, okay, and therefore they've got to be respected. Can we give them some kind of a license? Can we give them some kind of an identity card through which they have proper access? To the facilities like primary healthcare, to the facilities like the ration shops, to facilities like even education. Why should these people all the time only depend upon the generosity of NGOs and not upon their rightful claims to public policy? Right, sir. So we want to ask you about a general opinion on the current state of academia, as students were encouraged to undertake a lot of research. So do you think that researchers currently and, and publishers as well are under pressure to publish a lot and that might decrease the quality or the reproductibility of the research that is being uh, featured in journals? And do you think the research as a field of work in India is open to diversity in terms of vernacular researchers or researchers that don't necessarily focus on topics that are considered mainstream? The teaching class. Right. Being compelled to go in for research, which I think is healthy because the teacher has to be updated all the time, has to be up to date all the time. But if you're connecting the amount of research and the quality of my research to my pay scale, if you're connecting it to my promotions, then I think you're being unfair. Because then I'll go in for a pile of research, which may not be very qualitative and impacting simply because I've got to fulfill the quota of research. And that's where I think we are beginning to question the kind of research that we are doing in India and the kind of outcomes that are coming from the research. Second, if you are expecting a teacher to be researching and research qualitatively, then how can you expect a teacher to put in so many hours of teaching work and also get into qualitative research? So there is a mismatch between expectations and actual performance. Okay, the authorities that pay our salaries expect high quality research, but they do not give us the time to go in for that kind of research. And therefore, these kind of questions are being asked. Are the research outcomes, are the researches that are being done within the academia, is it qualitative, is it impactful? Now, if you're asking UG, undergraduate teachers, to be going in for hardcore research, then you've got to do them a favor and reduce their workload so that they can be out in the field, they can be there on the seats of the library, making sure that they are getting into data 
which is relevant. Okay, so that's my first uh, my first reaction to the tons of research that is coming out just now. The second one is so the second part of the question was: Do you think that research as a field of work in India is open to diversity? So, for example, in terms of vernacular research being published, or even in terms of more non-mainstream topics being explored by researchers. I think we are not able to in Xavier's. We are not able to access research in the vernacular. There's a lot of work going on in the vernacular also. Okay, you go south. And they're definitely going to have a lot of research work done in Tamil and in Malayalam. There would be research done in Marathi in the interiors of Maharashtra, but it is just that we are living in this cocoon called Xavier's, and in our library we do not have access to those kind of researches. That we think that research is not being done in the vernacular. And if you are asking me about diversity of research, then I think there is. Not so much of a diversity that should be paid attention to. You should not be paying attention to diversity as much as giving importance of profundity. That means within a sector or within an area, how deep are we diving into the research aspect? Okay, so there's a variety of areas that we can research in, but if you're only scratching the surface and not being profound with what we are researching on, then I think. these kind of questions are raised about what is the type of research that we are doing okay so there is vernacular research going on i'm very sure if you go to a college in the interiors of maharashtra you'll get journals containing research in marathi but just because we are a college in the urban space we do not have those researches here in the vernacular language simply because it is the college is mainly based on the medium of english as the language of communication okay uh, agi sir you have engaged with a vast number of students over the years do you think that the number of students choosing to work in the social and developmental fields is enough and if not what do you think holds them back i don't think it's enough because one of the things that i am being rather skeptical about is students from our college saying they want to work in the development field okay they'll go abroad and they'll say we are doing development economics but when they do development economics abroad they are working in a milieu they are working in an environment that is not exactly connected with the realities of the developing and the struggling world so there are many students going to development but even if they come back their engagement with development gets into the realm of i am working for csr i am working as a, a social consultant for a firm and we hardly get these people coming with us onto the grassroots okay getting their feet and hand dirty and actually contributing to the upliftment of people because what they are stuck with and you got to be a empathetic towards these kind of scholars who are coming from abroad is they are stuck with a loan and hence they cannot come down to the grassroots to work because that's not going to give them a kind of payment that would be enough for them to repay their loans so this is my hope that once these loans are cleared then their consciousness and their conscience will bring them to the grassroots because that is development work so development work is not simply studying lewis and studying schumpeter and those kind of things 
but also seeing whether the outcomes of an of an intervention policy intervention is delivering and for that you've got to be on the ground so sir you have spoken a lot about the sip program in our college there are those students who have enjoyed and found great value in the program and there are some students who believe that making it compulsory or giving it a grade has defeated the core purpose of the program so if we can draw an analogy on a larger scale to something like the swachh bharat movement which has uh, which is an entirely voluntary movement and has made people responsible citizens by using the so called nudge as some uh, researchers have pointed out in such a spectrum what are the key differences between the two approaches where the swachh bharat is uh, successfully mobilizing people and comparing it to the sip program how can we better motivate our youth to do their bit for society and what the incentives in such a case that would be required i think you're misinterpreting the idea that swachh bharat is voluntary okay the very fact that it is a government of india program you'll have a queue of people lining up to tell the government we are delivering so although you're calling it a nudge i think it's a push i think it's a shove that people are going into that program because that will attract the attention of the government to say ah you're delivering okay so can you see we are doing the same thing with sip only thing we are not very um, covert about the fact that we are asking you to do it okay we are telling you very openly we want you to do this because given the jesuit experience of being with education for a being with higher education for hundreds of years we've got to make sure that the educational outcome our students are students who develop a heart in their heads and we are telling them have that experience out of the entire six semesters we are just asking for 45 hours of your first semester or maybe second semester and we are asking them to experience this aspect of seeing how better of you are and realizing how better of you are when you actually begin to understand that there are people who are deprived see the fish will not understand what is water until it's out of the water okay so until you get out of this comfort zone of yours you will not understand what is deprivation and therefore we are asking our students if you are getting an education practically for a song because your fees cannot cover the kind of salary payments that we are receiving we require the government to intervene and pay our salaries you got to know that it is the poor who are also contributing to our education income tax that we middle class people tend to pay cannot cover the entire expenditure of the government on education and the contribution of income tax to the tax collection is very is minuscule it is the indirect tax that becomes the bulk of the contribution to tax tax revenue so it is from there that the educational budget emerges so the poor are also contributing to the education of the rich that conscientization is what we are trying to bring about to sip and please remember if you look at the proportion of time that we are asking you to spend with then the amount of time you spend in the classroom should also be an issue because why are we forcing you to come to classes and be and take it compulsory okay so this time what i am being uh, telling students is in the orientation that sip is a subject and we are giving it the entire treatment of a subject there's going to be a timetable 
there's going to be a grading, there's going to be a marking, there's going to be uh, an external evaluator called the NGO where you're working with. So if you can agree to all that we are doing with a course that is theoretical in the classroom, then please go to this hands-on experience of realizing what people do not have and therefore being thankful for what you have by participating in this program. I think if you remove SIP from Xavier's academic program, you are ripping off the heart of education in this space, in a Jesuit space, giving back whilst you learn, giving back whilst you get is a fundamental aspect of growth. Professor, we would be delighted to hear about your days as a student. So, Hiral Kapadia from SYBA wrote to us asking how you would imagine yourself as a student at Xavier's right now. We would like to know how different you think the experience of being a student is now as compared to your days as one. When I was a student, in my first two years of being into college, I was like a mouse. Absolutely scared. Because of the cultural shock that uh, uh, you know, poured down on me as soon as I entered this campus. And that shock did not leave me, I think, for about two years. What made me get into a comfort zone is, one, I naturally started doing well in my academics. And that started getting spotted by the teachers. So they kept on looking for who is this person. And once they found out who is this person and they acknowledged in the classroom, then I found students wanting to learn through me because they did not want to sit in the classrooms. Okay, and that time it, uh, attendance was not such a big issue with us. Okay, So I began my teaching career at that point of time when people began to come to me and I found it, uh, there was a selfish motive also because every time I taught, I became better in that concept. I could answer my examinations better. So it was only when I started becoming a teacher to my peers that I started gaining confidence. And I think after two years, I crossed that tunnel and came to this part of the campus. Okay, my classrooms were in the first campus only, in the first quad only. From there, I would go home. Okay, so very gradually I came this side. But once I came this side, then life changed for me. Okay, then I began to have a blast. Okay, I really enjoyed myself. But I made it a point in a very scheduled manner that every afternoon I sat in the library. Okay, either preparing myself for the university examinations or reading anything. I was fortunate to have a librarian uh, prior to Medha who, I don't know how he spotted me, caught hold of me and made me read books. Okay, made me read at a lighter level. Another good fortune I had was that Dr. Eunice D'Souza. I know again, okay, how she spotted me. I'm very lucky people spot, spot you know, this very innocuous character and uh, made me read, made me read hardcore literature. Okay, initially it was, I always read, okay, I read trash, I read for the sake of, uh, just for the sake of seeing what the sleaze is all about. But I always read, it was Eunice who brought me into hardcore literature, okay, hardcore uh, academic reading. And then I had a friend in the then librarian who gave me a lot of access to magazines, to journals. So that's how I started getting comfortable and I started getting knowledgeable. And I always had this heart of reaching out. So when somebody came to me and asked me for help, academic help, because then finance was not my, I didn't have the money, but academically I always reached out. Okay. So I think that started making me a known figure in the academic world 
the fathers began to know about me, the priests over here. Okay, they knew that there's a character who's going to help you. And I think they began to nurture this, uh, this aspect in my life. Once I was teaching in room number 33, not 33, or the smaller room, 36, 38, mm, those yeah. smaller rooms. And my principal, Father Lancy, it was afternoon. I was uh, teaching my friends. We had about four or five of them. And I was at the board. He walked, he barged into the room and he's a huge fellow. Okay, he barged in the room and screamed over there, who the hell gave you the permission to be in this room? But he did not hunt us out. He just slammed the door and went away. Okay, we were petrified. Okay, because what the hell, I mean, this huge fellow and the principal coming and screaming. But he walked out. So we uh, just, I just wound up the thing. We walked out. And then once he met me outside and he says, he told me, please continue doing what you're doing. Okay, and I had no guts to tell him that you frightened the life out of me. Okay, but that continue doing what you're doing is what really entrenched me in scholarship. Okay, so it is people like Professor Yunus, okay, uh, my librarian, okay, my principal, Father Lancy, and my guru, who I call a Marxist, he's a Jesuit, Father Rudy Heredia, okay, who actually made me, uh, Rudy Heredia actually made me become critical of what I'm learning. Okay, the others made me read, made me, but the criticality comes in with Rudy Heredia, where he began to ask, he began to point out to me that you know, but you're not questioning what you know. And that became the turning point in my life. So, so uh, following up on what oh, you just Let's said. go back to that, what would be today or something? Yeah, what would you be like as a student today? I don't think I would have been the nerd that I think that I was when I was a student. And that nerdish aspect came in because I was scared. Okay, I had no confidence to come roam about the campus and so on and so forth. But I would have loved to be a student today in the second part of my studentship. When I had the confidence, no? when I had uh, the following, when I had the popularity. Okay, so if I was that kind of a person in today's world, then I would have really had a blast. Okay, Malhar would have been top on my priority list. Okay, and... I would have definitely done well in education, better than what I'm doing just now, because I'll have so much of access to information sitting at home. I had to spend time in the library, like what I told you. And we had limited resources. Okay. So I think today I would have been a, a more outgoing person and a, a deeper a deeper scholar. Right, sir. So our final question for today is, in your many years of experience as an economist and as a lecturer, has there ever been a question or statement made by a student that impacted you strongly and will always stay with you? I don't think you can call me an economist. Okay. I don't claim that title at all because I always say that I'm a student of economics. I don't know when you graduate into being an economist. Okay. Frankly speaking, I'm not uh, saying this in jest. Because I really don't know when to call somebody an economist. Just because we have studied economics doesn't make her an economist. So I refuse to take that kind of a title. But I'm definitely somebody who is fond of economics. And you got to know this. I got into economics by chance. Because then we had no counsel. We had no you know, uh, people who could advise us. In my family, I'm a first generation learner. So I don't know whom to go back to and ask. We as a bunch of male friends got into economics because that was the only manly subject to get into. Okay. And so we walked, I, at least I walked into economics by chance. Okay. And fortunately it clicked with me 
So I have no right to claim being an economist. What is the other thing you're asking me? Um, has there ever been a question or statement by a student that has impacted you strongly and will it always stay with you? I can't recall anything like that. <laughs> I really can't recall anything like that because uh, I always allow students to dissent. I always allow students to question and you know, challenge me. So I can't recall anything that's so impactful uh, that will stay in my life, okay? No, I'm not able to... Maybe from a professor of yours while you were a student? I can only recall uh, Dr. Yunus forcing me to write 10 sentences on anything every day. Okay, and one day I decided to play the trick and tell her I don't have anything to write upon and I thought I would, I would be freed, okay? She very nonchalantly just turned around and told me, okay, write on a dot. Now, write on a dot, if you ask me what has, you know, indelibly entered my mind is write on a dot. And I remember saying to myself, hell, I've landed myself in a mess, okay? But I thought that she would tell me, okay, go away, okay? She ended up just telling me, write on a dot, okay? But by then, it was already three months into this like a daily writing, I wrote 10 sentences on a dot, okay? So, write on a dot, okay, is what is stuck into my mind. Told to me by my, not a colleague, but my professor. It was a real pleasure to have you as a guest on our podcast, Can You See It? And we want to thank you for taking out the time from your schedule to be with us today. Thank you so much. On that note, we thank our listeners for joining us today for the very first episode of Can You See It? A big thank you to the Arthaniti editorial team for helping curate questions for the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and do tune in for our next episode where we speak with economist Dr. Viral Acharya.